Welcome to this October edition of the Cambridge Café Scientifique podcast, sponsored by the Medical Research Council. I'm Mira Senthilingam from thenakedscientist.com. This month's café saw members of the public getting behind the budget of our National Health Service. More specifically, how drugs, treatments and medical procedures are decided upon for use in the NHS. These decisions are aided by the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, or NICE, who analyse all aspects of a potentially new technique or drug and make recommendations to the health service. And helping the public to understand this very complicated process was Dr Linda Sharples from the Biostatistics Unit of the Medical Research Council. I caught up with her before the event to find out more about this process. Um, What I want to talk about this evening is cost-effectiveness studies um, and how how they're used to make policy decisions about new treatments in the health service. So we're trying to combine all the sources of evidence about a particular new treatment and turn that into a decision about whether that's effective, whether it's sufficiently effective so that we can justify the additional costs that we have to pay within a health service. So when, say, a new treatment is being considered, what are some of the key factors that you look at? Okay, well, every treatment we consider whether or not it affects survival. So we're looking for treatments that prolong life, but also treatments that affect the quality of, of a person's life. And the quality of, per, of a person's life may differ depending on their age, their sex, what other diseases or conditions may be affecting them at the time. And then the other side of the coin is the costs, and the costs may be monetary or they may be in side effects. And so I guess do you have perhaps some case studies that can show you, I guess, just how you take on board these different factors? Because as you've mentioned, quality of life varies so much, and so how do you decide what is a good quality of life and so on? Absolutely. Um, Tonight I'll talk about the very first study that I was involved in to look at cost-effectiveness, Um, and that was a study of implantable cardioverter defibrillators. As as you rightly say, quality of life does vary very much, and we have to try and develop some measure of quality of life that we can compare across different treatments and across different disciplines, because every time we don't spend money in one area, we can spend it in another area. And so what needed to be taken into account when this was a a new technology, I guess? The uh, main thing is that there was some evidence that lives were saved by these um, devices but the difficulty was that quality of life was very difficult to ascertain and the messages we we got were very inconsistent so some people said it was better some people actually found the constant firing of the devices quite um, anxiety inducing and the the other side was that um, they were expensive they were expensive by themselves, they were expensive to fit and they had to be replaced quite regularly once the batteries ran out and leads became uh, clogged up with tissue. So so there was a continual cost. So although they saved lives, we had to balance that out against what we can afford. And so I guess how was that balanced and how was it incorporated then? Well, it was quite a big complicated model. I'm not going to go into the detail, but um, I'll I'll talk tonight about the way NICE um, balances costs and effects. And what what they tend to do is to calculate the cost 
for every additional quality-adjusted life year that you get. So additional survival, but weighted by how uh, your quality of life is affected. They, they calculate that and they have thresholds above which they don't think the health service can really afford. Have there ever been technologies or any kind of new techniques that haven't made it, I guess, made the cut and have been found to not be cost-effective and therefore not taken on board? Absolutely. If you listen to the, um, the news, I mean, quite often you'll hear outraged politicians and, and members of the public who've been denied treatments that really have been found not to be affordable by the health service. And it's, it's an absolutely you know, terrible situation for any individual. And I think um, nice recommend on policy. But within that, there's a whole range of individuals who feel you know, they, they want to have a treatment because it may no matter how unlikely, give them some chance of prolonged life or better quality. But policy is different. Policy has to take the whole health service and the the constraints put on the health service. Are there any, say, rules of thumb that are, say, followed just or, I don't know, to simplify how something is decided to be cost-effective or not? NICE have some guidelines and I think what they currently recommend in their methodology is that anything that costs between twenty and £30,000 per quality adjusted life year is affordable. Uh, sorry, anything below 20000 is affordable. 20 to 30 there's a discussion. Above 30 it's really starting to look not affordable by the health service. So they do have rules of thumb, but I think they, they sometimes waive these depending on particular situations. Your role within all of this is mainly looking at statistics. What is your role, I guess, and how do you use statistics to help make these decisions? Well, I'm a medical statistician researcher, so although I do some case studies, I get involved in case studies, my main um, raison d'etre is really to develop the methodology that we use that NICE can then take forward and um, do these appraisals with the best scientifically rigorous methods. So I'm really looking at that methodology, how we can make it robust, how we can make sure we get the right decisions. I guess having met members of the public previously, just I guess when trying to research what you would consider important factors, I guess, what has the public perception generally been or has it varied greatly? Uh, Well, personally, because I'm a statistician, I tend not to meet members of the public. Other people collect the data and I collate it and find an overview for a population. So that's why tonight I'm particularly keen to, to get some detail and find out what people do think. Linda Sharples from the Biostatistics Unit of the Medical Research Council. And Linda certainly did get a good insight into the views of the public, as there was a lengthy debate after her talk. The big question on many people's minds was just how quality of life is assessed and how this is compared to survival as a whole. It's a good question. The question is how do we um, adjust survival for quality of life? How do we try and combine the two? There, There are different methods. The one I think that NICE uses mostly is to... Uh, use what it calls utility measures. So there there are standard um, questionnaires. Um, They ask people about various aspects of their quality of life, like physical activity, anxiety, pain, whether you can do your usual activities. And then they turn those via an algorithm into a scale, what they call a utility scale. And the utility scale is from one, which represents the maximum health state you could possibly have, to zero which represents death but it also has some negative values because some states people consider the general public considers to be actually worse than being dead 
some, some people consider that. So I guess that fits in with your qualities better than quantity. The, the ideal is that you know how people feel continuously over their lifetime. We don't know that. So we, we, we sample people at various points in time after treatment and we find out what the quality of life profile looks like. Does it start you know, high and then gradually drift down or does it start low, you have treatment? We find out the sort of profile of people in a particular patient group and then that gives you quality-adjusted survival. So if you were you had full health for 20 years, you would have 20 quality-adjusted life years. If you were on 50% utility for 20 years, you would have 10 quality-adjusted life years because you've got half. And if you were on full health for 10 years, you would also have 10 quality-adjusted life years. So it's that kind of combination between survival weighted according to this utility measure. But there are many aspects to a health service. It's not just about treating illness, but also helping to prevent it occurring in the first place. One audience member wondered if longer-term screening is accounted for. Can NICE make a distinction between things like screening, where you, you've got to wait a long time, you know, it's an investment now for, for a long-term gain, against something, and it's a preventative uh, measure, against a drug A or B, which is, you know, when somebody's already developed a disease and we're trying to treat. It's very difficult to measure them on the same metrics. If you look at all the screening studies, although each individual screen's quite cheap, because you have to screen so many people, the actual numbers look prohibitive. It brings us to the point of how long should we be looking? Should we be looking over the next five years or 10 years or 20 years? And for things like breast cancer, you need to be looking in the long term. You know, it's five years is kind of cure. So until you've, you've studied people for five years, you can't actually make those decisions. Yet we need to have a policy now. So I think the two things are completely different metrics. I think the principles are essentially the same. But they work on such a different scale that I think you have to work out whether you want to have that kind of preventative measure in the country. And many wondered just how NICE compares to other countries in terms of approving drugs that are new to the market. Compared with sort of other systems like Medicaid or you know, the country systems, how good is NICE at getting drugs into circulation that, are, that may be effective? I don't have a good sense. I mean, my, I think they're slightly slower than the FDA. And that because there's much more of an emphasis here on things being effective rather than not being harmful. Another widely discussed issue was the difference in patient views, as this can vary, say, for example, if a patient only had a few months left to live. Well, well the first point was that as, um, if people only have three months to live, a short time to live, then their emphasis changes. They want to live longer, whereas if they've got you know, maybe five years to live you know, estimated, then they're they're much more interested in quality of life and how that five years will pan out. Um, And that's a really, really interesting point. People have suggested that we should pay more for the last year of life. Once somebody enters into a a situation where they've got a, a condition that's not curable, we should be prepared to pay more to make that last year of life as comfortable as it can be. What do people think about that? Is that a generally... I think we spend more on, on treatments, but it's whether, we, um, yeah, whether we, we're prepared to buy absolutely anything in that. You know, so it's where we, we draw the line in that last year of life. I don't, I don't know. At the moment, NICE say every year of life is worth exactly the same. They don't make any distinction. 
I mean, the problem is, is who, who knows when it's your last year of life? I mean, sometimes you do, but other times it's, you know, it's not really that easy to tell. So when do you start saying, OK, we'll throw caution to the wind, we'll just throw all the you know, treatments or, or money at something that we can? I it's, it's a very, very difficult issue. Now, a more controversial issue raised was whether people inflicting bad health upon themselves were included in the calculations. For example, people that smoke, despite warnings of diseases such as lung cancer. Yes, oh, oh yeah, I hadn't predicted the smoking. Yeah, um, <laughs> question is, if people are, are indulging in risk behaviours like smoking or drinking alcohol or, um, you know, eating chips or whatever, <laughs> then um, should we sort of consider their... Uh, we, we shouldn't be paying quite so much to keep them alive to do all that sort of risk, risky behaviour. And, and I don't think we should get into that. And, and certainly the health service doesn't. I don't think we should be judgmental because I suspect there's lots of people here who came in their cars tonight. Yeah, you see some people came in their cars. I mean, who had chips for tea? You know, who's drinking alcohol here? Who, did, who hasn't had a run for a week? You know, all that, yeah. I mean, it, it's very, it's, it's easy to kind of point the finger on, uh, but I, I think it's probably not a good thing for us to start making judgments about about that. I think we should be spending money to encourage people to live as healthily as possible, but once a person's ill, then I think my personal principles say we treat that person. And one final thought was whether there was a difference between someone with a family, and therefore people depending on them, and someone with no ties at all. So the question is, does somebody's personal situation, maybe they have dependents or other calls on their take care of other people if that's ever discussed or brought um, into the equation. Um, I, I think only in the sense that where you have some diseases where you want to take into account a wider situation than just the NHS, it may well be taken into account in the sense of um, whether you can work, whether, whether you would have to pay for further social services or care, you know, other kinds of care. Um, then that might well be brought into the equation. But generally speaking, in the NHS, they don't go wider to... It's generally not in the sort of things I do, but in the wider economic literature, definitely, yeah. Now, before the event, Linda was very keen to get this insight from the public arena. So I spoke to her after the event to get her thoughts on the public opinion. Well, I, I was really delighted that there was so much discussion and um, people seemed to really engage and have a, an opinion about um, lots of the issues and, and indeed came up with issues that I hadn't um, thought of before today, so I was really quite pleased. Anything in particular? Well, things to do with how people perceive quality of life, when they think quality is um, more important than quantity. I had thought that people would think survival was the most important thing. And indeed, a lot of the clinicians that you work with think about survival first and quality of life comes much further down the line because they're all focused on the initial treatment. And the idea of the initial treatment is usually to make sure the patient is safe and stays alive. Um, so so it, it was kind of surprised me how much people were interested in quality of life. There was quite a lengthy debate about, I guess, the amount of care given to people in their last year, say, of life and how much emphasis is put on 
I guess, making them comfortable towards the end. I think that's true. It's, it's, it's something that's been discussed in quite a number of arenas and people generally think in the last year of life it's a very difficult time for everybody, the person involved and their families, and people generally are more sympathetic to people at that particular stage in their lives and feel that we can be more generous at that time. Um, but still, I think NICE have taken the view that every year of life is valued the same. Um, so we haven't moved in that direction yet, but it's interesting to know that people really you know, do support that view. Is there anything quite surprising that the audience, I guess, homed in on today or asked you about in particular? I think what surprised me most, I think, was was how people really felt about the the trade-off between quality and quantity of life and how that affected um, their perception of whether a treatment was effective or not. Linda Sharples from the Medical Research Council. Given the large amount of questions raised at the talk, I was interested to speak to some audience members myself, so I caught up with some after the event to get their post-mortem on the event. So I appreciate um, what Linda said in her talk about how you have a fixed pot of money and you need someone to decide, and I like that it's done at a national level, that it's done carefully, um, that people are really doing everything they can to do it fairly. Um, it was interesting to learn more about the, how, it's, how it's done and the details of the different components of making the decisions. I think I definitely saw today all which um, sort of ingredients you need to combine in order to make these decisions in a way that I hadn't thought about before. I thought it was a, a good overview into the general issues. I think it raised a lot of questions, but that is great because it's an area where there are a lot of questions and it's better for people to be better informed about them. Were there any topics in particular that were brought up either by Linda or in the um, debate period afterwards that had your interest? Um, As I mentioned before, I'm quite interested in the how you relatively value impacts that are potentially quite different. I thought one one very interesting point that came up during the the discussion afterwards was uh, the question of, say, could you put some money into um, transportation improvements, for example, traffic calming or whatever, that would potentially save some lives... There's a question of, is it cost-effective to take a little bit of money out of the NHS and put it into traffic calming? Is there anyone who is looking at that kind of analysis? It would be very interesting to see if that's something the government actually is doing. Many years ago, I worked in the National Health Service, uh, so I'm always interested in anything to do with National Health. I was aware about NICE, but it was interesting to get it from the statistician's point of view. Yes, that was very interesting. I wouldn't like to do her job. I think it must be very, very difficult. I think it's very difficult. I mean, I think things like transplants, which we didn't get into, if you had a young person, perhaps with dependence, which came up, or an old person and only one kidney, say, I mean, it's obvious to me that it should go to the younger person with dependence and not to the older person. But this thing about quality of life towards the end of your life, that's a difficult one, isn't it? You wouldn't want them not to have good quality of life. But quality is better than quantity, in my feeling. So it's really weighing up, and which is very difficult. I think that people have to make these decisions. I think it's incredibly hard. Incredibly hard. So it was widely appreciated that making such life-changing decisions was basically a great challenge and not something that could be taken lightly. And as more treatments reach the market, this process will only become more complicated. But at least good mathematical models and scientific evidence are being used to make these crucial decisions. Now, that's it for this month's podcast, but if you've enjoyed what you've heard so much that you'd like to attend a Café Scientifique yourself, 
Details of the next event in Cambridge can be found online at cambridgecafescientifique.com. Cambridge Café Scientifique is sponsored by the Medical Research Council. And this podcast was produced by me, Mira Senthilingam, from thenakedscientist.com. Thank you.